Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, July 30th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer, Supply Trend Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, guys, uh, we have the whole team back together again. Uh, we we had Comic-Con, then HT was gone. But HT is back. HT, you were on like a, a buoy beach bash. Yes, well, buoy mania, as we called it. We actually have a hashtag uh, for buoy mania, which we um, started a couple years ago. And uh, we have T-shirts, too, with that hashtag on um, stencils that we made for the t-shirts ourselves oh no you're like those people i see at disneyland that all have the matching t-shirts we are we are those really annoying obnoxious people but, but, but don't those, worry we, we work in disneyland yeah but those people are usually like a group of like five or six people how, how many is the buoy buoy mania uh i'm over 40 wow <laughs> I would say it's uh, it's large and it's, and it's only getting bigger. This was um, our first reunion in several years. We used to have a sort of annual or biannual um, beach ski trip vacations. And because our family is just growing larger with my cousins getting kids, um, my cousin's cousins getting kids, and then um, – are like everyone's spreading out across the country and across the globe. It just was harder for us to get a vacation. And this was in the works for about two years. So we finally got everyone together in a, a Virginia Beach, at uh, Sandbridge specifically. So that was a, a week-long vacation. I went there right after Comic-Con, um, which I talked about how I liked my first Comic-Con in our Comic-Con debriefing um, episode. I, I surprisingly had a really fantastic time, and I'm excited to go back. Um, but yes, the Bowie Beach vacation was a much-needed um, respite from all the craziness of Comic-Con afterwards. So what were you doing? Just hanging out on the beach every day? Yeah, we hung out at the beach. We rented like three or four houses, and we all split the duties with cooking and cleaning, most of the younger kids, because we didn't want to take um, the 
make the adults, like the parents do too much work. So my sister and I took on two meals and um, I'm not as much of a chef as she is. So she kind of just told me what to do and I would follow her orders. But um, yeah, we, we, uh, you know, went to the beach every day. My cousins got really into this game called spike ball, which I didn't play because I'm not coordinated. I just kind of sat down and read and watched them instead. Um, and we played with the, the little kids who are my cousin's kids and are adorable. And um, I also got into puzzling. Wait, what is puzzle? Is this like an escape room? It's a term I invented for doing puzzles. I don't know if there's an actual term. I apologize if there is. Um, but we got really into this 2000 piece puzzle of some village in Italy, a seaside village, which looked gorgeous, but was incredibly hard to do because we had uh, one rainy day and we were like, oh, let's just do this puzzle. We'll spend the day doing it. And it actually took us three days to do. I got so obsessed and fixated on this puzzle that I ended up dreaming about it one night because I was just so into it. But um, hey, if you guys have any puzzle recommendations, let me know because I might want to get back into puzzling now. Hmm. You know, I, I tried to do a puzzle, I think, like a few months ago with Kitra and we gave up. Uh, it was just, it was too hard. I think we picked yeah. one that like had like a lot of black and it was just like impossible. Yeah, it was, that was like this one. There was like five shades of blue and it was frustrating as hell, but it was also the most euphoric I felt in years once we finished it. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> well, cool. And uh, I saw on your Instagram that you also spoke on a panel at a film festival. Yeah, shortly before I uh, embarked on my two-week Comic-Con vacation, um, I was invited to speak on a panel of AAPI culture writers at the Asian American Film Festival. Uh, it's, I think, the 49th film festival this year. And they uh, had a, held a panel for um, Asian American, Asian Pacific American uh, writers in the entertainment movie TV field. And we talked about how our identities help shape our writing and help shape our, how we approached um, this sort of career. And it was really enlightening and a great conversation. Uh, they didn't uh, tape the entire thing, but uh, there is an audio recording somewhere. I don't really know if they'll put it up at some point, but there are probably some clips on the Asia Cinevisions uh, Instagram. Uh, and if you guys are on film Twitter, Karen Han was there too. So if you guys don't want to listen to me babble, she was there as well. And we and she had some good insightful things to say. Uh, so it was, um, it was a great panel and I'm, I hope that uh, uh, it'll show up online somewhere. Yeah, yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes if we can find anything. Uh, what have I been up to this last week? I haven't been up to much because, you know, Comic-Con kind of kicked my butt and I've been resting. But um, this weekend I got to go to Knott's Berry Farm in celebration of National Cowboy Day. They invited me out there to experience Ghost Town Alive. Uh, I'm going to rewind a second here. Knott's Berry Farm is in Buena Park, California. It's down the street from... Uh, Anaheim's Disneyland Resort, and it was created in the 1920s, way before Disneyland. Uh, Mrs. Knotts had a chicken restaurant. It was a it was a berry farm, and this chicken restaurant was so popular that there was lines down the street. And Mr. Knotts built this uh, this old western town for the kids to explore and have fun in. And eventually, they started having like county fairs there. And then after the opening of Disneyland, they actually turned into a full fledged theme park. Uh, it has since been bought by Cedar Fair, and um, there's a lot of uh, thrill rides and roller coasters and whatever. But one third of the park is this old western ghost town and uh 
a couple a few years ago they started doing this event called Ghost Town Alive uh, and uh, you know I'm going to rewind even further here at Disneyland five years ago they did this game called Legends of Frontierland and uh, they it was basically like this interactive game where you got to participate in these storylines and it was all in service of uh, running around the land there was actors everywhere and you uh, by the end of the day it was which of the two factions owned more Frontierland and the winner resulted in you know a different storytelling experience and um, it it was actually kind of very complicated and not very not very good uh, from many of my friends who participated. Uh, but the imagine basically this was a test. This was a test for what was going to become Star Wars Land, uh, which became Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Uh, they wanted to make it a fully interactive, immersive world and have all these storytelling experiences everywhere. Uh, the entertainment budget on Galaxy's Edge got uh, severely cut along the way. And uh, the Imagineer that I think was in charge of all that ended up going to Knott's Berry Farm, and he's largely responsible, I think, for Ghost Town Alive. This is this is their summer event. I've never I've been to Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, it's quite charming. I've never been to Ghost Town Alive. This is my first time there. And basically, what this is is a Westworld style, fully immersive storytelling experience. And what by that I mean, and it is for families, so it's not you know adult <laughs> Westworld style. But um, there is a story going on throughout the day. Like it, it, this year, it is Founders Day. They are celebrating the founding of this town, and uh, there's some unique things that uh, happen. There's you know a bank robbery. There's the potential of this town. Uh, the U.S. government might want to build a fort, and uh, they need all the help they can in this town to impress the the, the cavalry, uh, so that maybe they can get the fort in this town. And uh, you are running around from place to place. There's actors everywhere. There's, you know, a school teacher in the schoolhouse. There's a mayor in town hall and you are doing all these side quests. And there's the story that goes throughout the day that uh, is kind of big in scale. And we videotaped it for the Ordinary Adventures YouTube channel. And even that uh, you only see like the big, bigger moments, uh, but it has some twists and turns and it's, it's corny, but it's a lot of fun, and uh, it's you know it's watching and you know being experiencing this. I was kind of uh, disappointed that we didn't get this kind of stuff in Galaxy's Edge. Maybe someday we will, because I feel like what Galaxy's Edge is missing is like these characters all over, these aliens, these droids, these storytelling experiences. Like at, at Galaxy's Edge, they do have a point where like Kylo arrives on his. Tie, fight, uh, tie ship and uh, he goes searching Batu for a um, rebel spy, a resistance spy and uh, it's like the beginning of a story but there's no second or third act. Knott's uh, here with Ghost Town Alive provides like this full three act storytelling experience which is just so good so so enjoyable. I'd highly recommend checking out my video um, I'm very impressed by Ghost Town Alive and uh, I got to ride the renovated Calico River Rapids. This was a ride that was in knots. It was just a Bigfoot Rapids. It was just like a generic, you know, you get on a raft and you go around in a circle and uh, and you get splashed. And now they've added all these like animal animatronics and they actually added a Bigfoot at the end of the ride. Uh, I We also videotaped this. That'll be up later in the week. So look out for that. 
And uh, on this trip, um, when I was at Comic-Con, I was complaining to Jacob that I couldn't find a good backpack. I have, like, you know, this this camera equipment that I'm taking to, like, you know, Comic-Con, movie events, and theme park trips and stuff like that. And I, I couldn't find a good, like, day pack to bring all this stuff. And, Jacob, you just recently went on a trip to Walt Disney World, and you found something pretty great. Uh, yeah, it was one of the first results when I Googled best theme park <laughs> backpacks. But it, it's it's really cheap. It's only 20 bucks, and it gets the job done. It's, 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 it's a sling backpack. It only has one strap. It goes across you know, your, your, your entire body, distributes the weight really well. Lots of pockets for something so small. I mean, it's not going to carry you know an, an entire family's worth of stuff. But if you're a solo traveler or one or two people, it's a really, really handy thing. I used to all throughout Comic-Con, actually. Yeah, it has so many pockets, and it's so light, and I used it for the first time for this Knott's Berry Farm adventure, and I, I am loving it. So I will I will, as I will co-sign on this, and I will link it in the show notes. I think it's like only like $16 or something, which honestly— Isn't it—oh, sorry. Isn't it kind of like those the fanny packs that people are wearing across their chest now that have become trendy? Because like the fanny pack oh. is starting to become back in, in uh, popularity, but it's people wearing it across their chest instead. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's very like in like the streetwear company. You see like people with like them across the chest. It it does go across your back, although you could wear it across your chest, couldn't you? Maybe. Um, Presumably, I I don't know. I I I've used it purely on my back. Yeah. But maybe she's right. Maybe we're uh, ahead of the fashion curve back accident, Peter. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, you know, when I was buying this, because I tried it on at Comic-Con when we were in the hotel and I was like, this is really good. And I was like, went to the website and it was like $16. Is it wrong of me to think when I was like ordering this bag, I was like, $16 is pretty cheap. Like, this is not going to be good quality, Um, even though I had tried yours on. And when I got it, I was like just amazed because I I feel like usually when I'm like getting bags or something, I've been like a big fan of like Timbuktu bags for a while. And those bags can run like over a 100 bucks. I'm like always thinking that like something needs to be more money to be of quality and like this is such a quality bag anyways i know people aren't listening to this podcast to, uh, to listen about backpacks but i'll link them in the show notes if uh if you want to check that out um brad you've been uh pretty busy uh helping your girlfriend move uh yes my girlfriend arrived here last week after driving across the country uh to move here and live with me in the midwest and she brought her sister and brother-in-law with her to kind of help uh, get things prepared here. And it was kind of a whirlwind. Um, like, I knew when she got here we would be doing a lot to kind of get the house rearranged because I, um, as I talked about here before, I moved into my my grandma's house. And I'm kind of taking care of the house now that she's passed away uh, as my parents prepare their house um, to sell uh, so they can move into this house since it's now basically theirs. And my grandma uh, had a lot of stuff that she had collected over her life and a lot of stuff that she had inherited from my great aunt who lived in this house before her because it was uh, built for for them. And we kind of just needed to really just dig in and box stuff up and have it uh, put away so it it could either go in an auction later or um, figure out what my parents were going to keep. And we just uh, I wasn't expecting it all to happen so quickly. But since we had the extra help, we kind of just like dug into nearly every crevice of the house and like unloaded drawers that had uh just so many like old papers in them and then and like gone into some of the the medicine cabinets that had things that were like like uh several decades old it's it was just it's crazy just how many things that 
you either forget that you have or like go away because you don't use them very often and they just kind of just sit there and then you they get unearthed later and so it was just uh it was a little bit stressful it was kind of a whirlwind but it was it was nice to have the extra help and get it all done because now the kind of uh, the house feels has kind of like a new energy and a new vibe and it feels like we can really make it our own while we're staying here uh until you know you find a new place sometime next year and yeah but it's uh it's it's been pretty pretty crazy <laughs> and uh what else have you been up to uh, since my girlfriend, sister, and brother-in-law were in town, they had never been to Chicago before. So we took a trip to Chicago and did some of the typical tourist stuff, like hit up the Bean and Willis Tower, uh, or Sears Tower, as I will always refer to it, uh, just so they could check that out. But the best thing that we, we did in the city, which I love going, doing, is going to the Shedd Aquarium, which is the it's the second biggest aquarium in the United States. Uh, it's very famous, and the, the aquarium here in Chicago is just awesome. They have such an incredible display of uh, different aquatic animals. Uh, they have dolphins. They just recently had a, uh, a baby beluga whale, which was born, like, at the beginning of July. So we got to see that little guy swimming around, which was super cute, and they have uh, dolphins, and they have sharks, and they have... Uh, big tortoises and just just anything and everything uh, you can imagine with an aquarium they they pretty much have and it's uh, it's just such a, such a cool uh, cool place to experience if you're ever in Chicago you should like go out of your way to spend a few hours at the Shedd Aquarium. Do you happen to know what the the biggest aquarium is in the U.S.? Uh, I looked it up and I I think that it's the one that's in Georgia. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I forget what the name of it is, but it's, I'm pretty sure it's the one that's in uh, Georgia. Yeah, I, I went to one in Atlanta one time that was huge, so it's probably that. Yeah, that, I think that's I think that's about right. Yeah. Okay, so what have, what else have you been up to? You <laughs> built a, a a escape room. So uh, no, so I didn't build this one. So my my friend Ben, who is the one who is creating an escape room uh, here in in my town, and that I've been helping him with by consulting on like the puzzles and stuff like that. Uh, decided that just on a whim for his birthday, he came up with this idea to make a kind of just a quick makeshift escape room for uh, like his friends to do that was entirely themed around Nicolas Cage movies. Uh, it, it was called Escape the Cage and just like using, uh, you know, just the gen general escape room uh, puzzle templates. He kind of adapted them. Wait, wait, to... did you have to trade faces with one of your friends to solve the puzzle? <laughs> We did. We did not. But there were, um, like, there were several um, peaches that were situated around the the room that had like movie quotes on them, and then eventually you had to figure out which order to put them in in order to get a combination to unlock uh, a combination from for one of the uh, boxes to get the next thing. And of course, one of the peaches said said, yeah, you know, I could eat a peach for hours because of fa of face off. <laughs> um, but it was it was really fun. It's it wasn't like. Uh, a professional escape room experience because they put it together pretty quickly. But for, for how quickly my friend Ben and our, uh, my other friend Charlie put it together, uh, they had some pretty impressive mechanics. They used some RFID uh, chips to set off certain things. They had this uh, a pressure system set up. So like you had to use this uh, Nerf gun to shoot um, the movie, like the villains from Nicolas Cage movies in the order in which the, the movies like were released to uh, have, a, have a key released from a magnet. And so it was the kind of thing where like that that sounds complex and complicated, but like it's it, it wasn't 
not everything was hidden. So sometimes you could like see the wires that were connected to the magnets to drop the key and that kind of thing. But it was for the time they had to put it together and uh, it was pretty good. And everybody who did it, we all said, you guys really just need to polish this and refine it and turn it into a like a legit escape room because nobody else has a Nicolas Cage themed escape room, you know? So it's uh, it was really fun to to do, and I'm it's it just makes me more excited uh, for when like the the real escape room you know actually opens. It just amazes me that he could just be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna put one together just for my friends to do, like like just like in a week, a weekend he's, or whatever. He's been very much absorbed in like escape rooms and trying to get this one together, like trying a bunch of different ones, and I've I've gone along with him, so he's. His mind is very much ingrained in how to create puzzles and like doing them exactly how you know escape rooms do to make them fun. So it's it was it was kind of just uh, almost like second nature to him at this point because he's just so involved in it. He should create a puzzle for HT. I hear she likes puzzling. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Uh, Jacob, what have you been reading? Well, as documented on this podcast, I've became obsessed with the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, and I've been expanding my uh, education in this subject and learning more. So I cracked open uh, Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbottom, and it was actually written uh, around the same time that Craig Amazing was writing the Chernobyl miniseries, even though they have nothing, they were not collaborating at all. They just happened to arrive around the same time. It's a brand new book, came out this year. And it's so far incredibly gripping, about 100 pages into it. And it approaches the material in a very different way than Mason did. If you've watched a miniseries, there are a lot of huge revelations, save for the final stretch as to how things went wrong in Chernobyl. Whereas this being a you know journalistic book instead of a TV miniseries, it really front loads it. So the first you know 100 pages are very much a setup of how the power plant was built, uh, how uh, the Soviet Union uh, existed at the time and how it came to be and the history of nuclear accidents in the 20th century. It lays a lot of groundwork. It's not there in the miniseries. and fills in a lot of details and explains a lot of concepts that were rightfully left out of the show because the show has to be about characters and about, you know, a single theme. But if you did if you did watch the show and when the credits roll the episode decides you want to know more, this is, you know, as up-to-date and as detailed as you can get, and I'm burning through it, and it just makes me even more terrified and more curious as to how we're not all dead from radiation at this point, because holy crap, that's it's a it's a must read if you're in any way interested in this subject matter, which I guess I am. How big is this book? It's not huge. It looks intimidating at first, but the last 150 pages are all the notes and uh, sources, so it's about 375 pages, I think, uh, in terms of actual, you know, beginning to end reading. Wait, 150 pages of just like bibliography kind of info yeah all the you know quotes and sources and everything but you know when you're writing something that when you're writing a story as complex as this one that literally uh was about tens of millions of people you know averting death in entire governments you know collapsing and you know a, a, a cast of hundreds of important names you know you got to make sure you get your sources straight so um it always gives me comfort when a when a non-fiction book has that many sources you know it's like it's like challenging you to say you know Say I'm wrong. Say I didn't do my homework. It's all there. Uh, Chris, what have you been reading? Uh, I read a book called The Need by Helen Phillips, and it was very strange and very interesting. Um, uh, 
It's about this woman. She has two kids and having two kids is kind of driving her crazy, as I imagine having two kids would. And she works as a uh, paleobotanist and she's she's in the midst of this this excavation of this site where she's, you know, looking for uh, prehistoric plants. And during the digging, she starts finding these really weird objects that they, they, they you know, they seem like they're a hoax. And they're placed there by, you know. A prankster but there's no explanation like she finds a bible that is carbon dated for from the 1900s and it's it's almost identical to every other bible except that it refers to god as a woman instead of a man and this obviously kicks off like a bunch of controversy from you know right-wing religious groups and in the midst of all this happening she feels like you know she's having like this nervous breakdown and she goes home one night and uh, she finds an intruder in her house. And that's all I'm going to say because it gets even weirder from there. And uh, it, it's really a, a strange, creepy book. Um, I don't, I, it kind of doesn't sustain itself as long as I wish it would. Like the last few pages sort of, it sort of kind of runs out of steam. But uh, the setup is really cool and really interesting. And it, it had me hooked for, for most of it, its uh, its length. Well, cool. And uh, you've been listening to a new podcast. Right. It's actually new. It's from last year, but it's called um, the RFK Tapes. And it's about, um, you know, about how they're, you know, everyone knows about the JFK conspiracy theories, but there's actually a fair amount of conspiracy theories surrounding the Robert Kennedy assassination too. And a lot of them are actually a lot more plausible and doc more well-documented than the JFK conspiracies. Uh, um, so this podcast is all about, you know, looking into those conspiracies and whether or not they're, they're real or not. And uh, it was a really fascinating listening. It takes you on a journey because the, the host, sort of starts off thinking that maybe there is a conspiracy. Then by the end, he, he realizes there probably wasn't, but um, it was a, a, a cool show. I, I, I kind of burned through it. So the RFK tapes podcast and that, that, that is over. So it's complete. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so check that out on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on HT. You had a lot of time to read. So I'm sure, I'm sure you've been reading some stuff. Yeah, I had time to do some classic beach reading, and by that I mean reading a book of interviews with Ursula K. Le Guin, a famed uh, sci-fi and fantasy writer who uh, became famous in the 1960s. So um, this book I read was called Ursula K. Le Guin, The Last Interview and Other Conversations. It's a book compiled by David Streitfeld, and it comprises of interviews throughout her career up until her death in 2018, uh, the last interview being quite... Um, relevant it happened it took place i think only a couple months before uh, she passed uh, but it was uh, really enlightening and uh, really interesting for me to read because i um, was a big fan of ursula k Le Guin's earthsea books uh, the wizard of earthsea and tombs of achuan i read when i was young and they always really struck me but i actually hadn't read a lot of her other books and for me i always thought of her as a fantasy writer but uh in this book of interviews, they talk a lot about how she was one of the um, sort of foundational sci-fi novelists of the 60s, um, alongside 
a writers like Philip K. Dick, who she actually speaks about quite a lot in a not so flattering terms, which, which I found very hilarious. But um, it was that was really interesting to me, and I want it made me want to read more of her books as well, and just be fascinated by her as a person because she's very strong-willed and has some very, um, you know, some divisive opinions. But it was really cool to see just like how she wasn't afraid to. Um, you know, say what she meant. And uh, her coming into fame at the height of the uh, second age feminist movement was also interesting because she talked about feminism quite a bit and how the new, the third wave feminism and like new feminism doesn't quite appeal to her just because that's not what she um, came into knowing of but but her books themselves are actually quite feminist as well so it was really fascinating and um it was um a book that I found uh just like at a used bookstore and I was very excited to find it because um I have been looking for more of books in just random bookstores recently um and it saddened me to find that I couldn't find a lot of her novels at um the more chain bookstores. So I'm just trying to hunt for, hunt them down right now and read more of Earthsea series because I've only read yeah, Wizard of Earthsea and Tombs of Atuan. And um, it's been a while too since I've read those and I want to catch brush up on them. And I also want to read um, The Left Hand of Darkness too, which is one of her more famous sci-fi books. Um, so yeah, it was really a, a, it was a great read, really short. It's only, I think, maybe 200 or so pages, uh, but it was uh, really fascinating. And I recommend it if you guys are interested in Ursula K. Le Guin, or if you just uh, want to read a good series of interviews with a fascinating woman. Cool. And uh, coming off of Comic-Con, you did get a chance to read some comics? I did. I didn't purchase that many things at Comic-Con. I did purchase a TARDIS backpack. I don't know <laughs> if I talked about it in my in my uh, the Comic-Con debriefing episode, but I was very excited about that purchase. But the um, other purchase I made was the first issue of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer reboot comic. It's um, a modern-day reboot of the, um, the 90s TV series, and it reimagines the... Uh, the story in a modern day context. So Buffy, you know, has a smartphone and um, there's more sort of progressive threads throughout, like uh, her best friend Willow, who is throughout the series comes out as lesbian, is lesbian from the start in this comic, which I found really great and um, interesting. But there are some changes I wasn't quite down for. They don't introduce Angel in the first issue. He doesn't come until a few issues later, I heard. Um, and he is a uh, not as much like the longtime ally, but more of like the mysterious stranger that they were trying to go for. And uh, there are other characters that are introduced earlier versus later. Spike and Drusilla are, are earlier as well. And um, they do away with the first villain of the first season, which is the master. And uh, they have, I think, Drusilla as the the main villain. I'm not, I only watched, read the first uh, issue. It was $3 at Comic-Con. So I was like, why not? It'll be some airport reading. And Jacob was there and he encouraged me and I was like, yeah. So I, uh, I read it and it was a super quick read and I'm, I'm interested to, to dive into more. I don't often buy a lot of comics just because they get kind of, you know, bulky and then I don't have a lot of place to store them, but I probably will like maybe buy a trade issue of this at some point. You should buy digitally. Save save the planet. I, I don't like you have an iPad? on a oh. iPad. I don't like it's like hurts my eyes and uh, I get a headache. You know, last time we did a podcast together, I, Jacob and you had not the you guys had um, went onto the show floor together for the last day of Comic Con. Uh, what yes. was that adventure like? What, what did you guys buy and what kind of uh, craziness did you guys get into? 
It was really fun. We got into all kinds of shenanigans. I mean, I'm sure, I think on the last episode, Jacob talked about our ideas for a Doctor Who Star Trek episode. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was something we talked about while we were hanging out during Comic-Con. I hope, our podcast, I hope that, you know, comes about because we had a lot of fun just talking about two of our favorite, sh- one of our favorite shows and just uh, hoping to share it with each other at some point. Um, so it would be cool if we could share that all with you guys. Uh, but we just had fun and um, we walked around the, uh, ooh, what was the, this booth with all of the sculptures uh, again. Show. We spent a, we yeah, spent a long show. time going to sideshow, yeah. commenting on sculpts of various actors. Yeah, I went into a Game of Thrones related rant again, as I always do. Um, and that was a lot did, of fun. Did you see the? Uh, did you see the Ben Affleck Justice League statue? <laughs> we did, and um, it was quite a good um, uh, reflection of him. Like, <laughs> wow, the details on these sculptures are amazing, and they get a really good likeness of the actors in general, which is it's kind of uh, you know unnerving at times because it's so alike, but it's also amazing the detail that goes into it. Jacob, did oh. you? Uh, oh, were you inside? Oh, I- I want to say one more thing that happened on the show floor is I met Patrick Willems, um, who is uh, the video essayist that we share his essay sometimes. And he's a big fan of slash films. So I just wanted to put a word in that said he uh, he liked our work. So just uh, that's that's also a thing that happened. Yeah, I'm a big fan of his. I'm bummed that I did not run into him while at Comic-Con or while he was in Southern California visiting. Uh, Jacob, did you buy anything else interesting that that last day? Oh, the only thing I bought of interest was the Aya Bagamoto replica that I discussed oh, yeah. last week. The one yeah. that set off security alarms at the airport and had me searched <laughs> by a TSA agent. So, Did any of the TSA agents like recognize it once you explained what it was? No, he looked completely baffled. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, let's start with the big show that hit Amazon this past uh, Friday, and that is The Boys. Uh, Jacob, you've seen the entire first season? Yeah, I sit down to watch the first episode thinking, I'll give it a shot, see if I like it, because Chris wrote a scathing, scathing review of it where he called it one of the worst things he's ever seen in his whole life. HT saw the first two episodes of Comic-Con when they premiered them, so I decided I need to be deciding vote here. Whatever I say will be the official slash film record from this but, point onward. By the way, before you give your deciding vote, I, I just want to say uh, this is proof that we do not play favorites here at Slash Film. We, we, we are... F- a friend of the show, Dan Trachtenberg, directed the first episode of The Boys, and that did not stop Chris from eviscerating it on the site. So, uh, there you yeah, go. Uh, my deciding vote is that The Boys is really good. Uh, it's, it, I, I, with all due respect to Chris, whose review is incredibly well written, and you should read it, and I'll never call him wrong because he spends a lot of words backing up everything he says. I have never disagreed with a review written on Slash Film more in my life. <laughs> Uh, well, I'll let Chris say his piece in a moment, but I think The Boys is an incredibly entertaining, really sharp, fun, dark show, and it's a, a, a big improvement over the comic, a comic I like with reservations, huge reservations, about a showrunner, Eric Kripke, uh, really takes the basic concept, which is in a world full of superheroes who are essentially treated as a combination of law enforcement, professional athletes, celebrities, you know, corporate figureheads where they're corrupt as all get out and backed by, you know, billions of dollars in corporate funding and can escape from whatever they need to get out of. Uh, The boys are a group of vigilantes led by Carl Urban who seek out to blackmail and destroy uh, corrupt superheroes. And it is incredibly fun. Uh, It is. And unlike the comic, which kind of reveled in being grotesque at all times, I think there's a genuine human heart beating at the center of this show. 
and mostly in the character of Hugh, uh, Huey, played by Jack Quaid. It's a young, up-and-coming actor, and Aaron Moriarty as Starlight, a, you know, Iowa-bred superhero who joins the justly equivalent in this universe and learns that they're all shitheads. And as dark as the show gets, and it gets very dark, especially with Carl Urban's character being a guy who is, has a vendetta against superheroes in a way that's driving him down increasingly dark, violent paths, uh, the relationship between Starlight and Huey is the, the real anchor of the show, and the two of them have such incredible chemistry together. And there's an amazing episode uh, about halfway through the season where the characters all gather for for all various reasons at a uh, religious festival, a like Christian folk gathering, except that, you know, a, a, a like extreme right wing Christian superhero is headlining it and other superheroes are speaking. And it allows this show about superheroes to actually have a, you know, interesting, all the characters uh, of various faiths or non-faiths, you know, really, really come to terms with themselves against this ludicrous backdrop. And, that's kind of slowing down in the kind of thoughtfulness the comic never had. And it, so for a show that's sort of like this punk rock, angry, let's burn down society kind of thing. Uh, it really does pause for these moments that lets you understand the characters. And I'll let, like, I'm going to let Chris and H.E. talk in a second. I'm sorry. But uh, Chris accused this show of being nihilistic in his review. And I can sort of see that, but I, I, I honestly also believe that, it's a series about young, the younger or younger characters are existing in a nihilistic world and trying to find meaning within it, whether that's through faith or through, you know, finding a purpose or through trying to create a meaning in a world where meaning has increasingly lost all definition. So yeah, I'll let HT talk next and she's seen two episodes at Comic-Con, but I was really impressed by the boys and I really enjoyed it and I recommend it wholeheartedly. Yeah, I um, didn't watch more, uh, more than the two episodes I saw at the premiere at Comic-Con, but I really enjoyed those first two episodes. And I agree with you, Jacob. From what I saw, I felt like the premise was nihilistic, but the characters, or at least the characters we're supposed to care about within it, weren't. And that's what really drove the show for me. Uh, Jack Quaid uh, is a rising star. He's uh, Dennis Quaid and um, uh, whose son? Meg Ryan, I think? Yes. Um, so he he's great. I recently saw him in Plus One, the rom-com that I saw at Tribeca, and he was fantastic in that as well. And um, I think that he um, and um, Aaron Moriarty are just a, a, a pleasure to watch in this series. Uh, and you also have Carl Urban just chewing up the scenery as much as he can. And I absolutely love watching that, even if it does get very grim and violent and um, incredibly bleak at points. I do think that there is a... Um, there's a reprieve when, whenever we get into those moments. You know, listeners of this podcast love when Chris hates on things. So I got to let, let Chris speak here. Chris, wh- why is the boys bad? Um, I mean, I'm not going to go to, <laughs> I just feel like beaten down by this conversation. Honestly, <laughs> they're, not not gonna... a- they're not attacking you. No, I'm not saying they are attacking me. I just feel, I don't know. Like uh, I have like FOMO for this show that I watched like I, I, I feel like I watched like a completely different show. I don't know. None of that that heart came through to me. I I think it tried to do that. I think it failed to do that. <laughs> I 
it's just, you know, I walked away from this show just feeling really just terrible about like I had just been rung through a ringer there. And, you know, I don't mind bleakness. I don't mind darkness. I don't mind violence and things. Uh, some of my f- my favorite movies and stuff are, are often very bleak and very dark and very violent. But I just didn't get. It, it all just felt really pointless to me. Like when it was over, I was just like, why did I sit through that entire series? I got nothing out of it except more <laughs> unhappiness. And I, I don't know, you know, if, if it, if it works for people, I'm really glad it does. I wish it had worked for me because believe me, the last thing I want to do is sit through a full season of television and walk away being like, well, that was a, huge mistake but i just i could not it just did not work for me it it really didn't almost nothing worked for me carl urban's performance is really good but i feel like he's one of those actors who's good in everything so you know that's sort of like a given at this point i think it has clever ideas i i like you know the corporate superhero thing i think that's a neat idea i just it's just the execution really didn't work for me and I am definitely in the minority here because most people seem to really like it. And I just really did not. Let's find some common ground real quick. Uh, Chris, it, can, can we all agree that Aaron Moriarty and Jack Quaid are, are going to be big deals in a few years? Can we at least agree on that? Uh, I thought Aaron Moriarty was good. Jack Quaid, I thought was really boring. So really? I, can't, <laughs> I can't agree really? on that. I, like yeah. I think he has that charm to him. It's no, a, that sort of self-effacing charm. I like it. He he was very one note for me. I did mm. he did not work. I thought nice try, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> hey Chris, if you like that premise of corporate superheroes, but you want a show that's much happier and lighthearted, there and I I know you don't watch anime. There's an anime <laughs> called My Hero Academia, which was recently featured on our slash film column, uh, spotlighting anime. All right, I will. I will look into it. Thank you. See, see, I want a podcast where H two just forces Chris to watch anime like at gunpoint. Look, uh, for years, H two and I have talked about starting several spinoff podcasts, including the Doctor Who and the Star Trek one. And our first study has always been an anime podcast where H two and I watch anime. Um, would Chris be coerced into being the third member of that podcast live on air? Chris, could we force you to do that? Sure, I would. I, I would give it a try. Actually, sure, why not? Why not? I used to. I used to be afraid to try Indian food because I thought it would be really spicy, and I'm not a, a spicy guy. And then one day I tried it, and now it's it's like my favorite takeout. So maybe anime will be like that. I, I've avoided it for years. I'll try it and be like, oh, I've been missing out. Uh, famous last words. Chris. It's a spicy anime. H go go find the spiciest anime possible. Spiciest anime. I'll get you all the food anime. <laughs> okay, let's uh let's talk about Veronica Mars. Ben, you watched this uh over the weekend? Yeah, there's eight episodes in the newly released fourth season, and my wife and I watched all eight over the past week. Uh, they actually released the the whole season a week earlier than intended. Uh, they dropped it on the, I think it was the Friday of Comic-Con. Um, so we had a, a little while to um, to catch up with the show. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I find myself really mixed on the season. I like the, uh, so the Veronica Mars, I, I, I um, watched the first three seasons and really enjoyed them 
you know, maybe the first season more than the other two. But then the movie came out a few years ago, like 2013, 2014. Um, and I just thought that was really awful. Like it, it almost zapped any of the love that I once had for the franchise at all. It, it was then, fan service, the movie. It was. And and this show, thankfully, does not feel that way. It, it has a lot of the same actors and a lot of the same elements and it takes place in the same town. But it, it doesn't have that like stink of, of desperation to it that I, I can't describe the movie any better than that. So um, this fourth season really gets back to the basics in terms of like having a, a single case that spreads over several hours. And um, I think the for the most part, the plotting is is pretty good. I have some uh, some complaints with like the editing of the show. I feel like there were several times where my wife and I, when we watched shows like this, especially something that has like a, a mystery at the center, we're not the type of people that you know like have our phones out and are you know just like mindlessly watching something. We're like we're we are zeroed in on what we're watching and like tracking all the details and all the characters and like really into whatever it is that we're watching when it, when it's something like this and. Um, I several times we had to pause the show and be like, okay, wait a second. Who is, who are they talking about? How did this person die? And like, there were, there was a stretch of like four of the eight episodes where we were like, I just, I don't remember what, you know, what the fate of this one character was and how they died. And then like, you know, two episodes from the end or something we're like oh okay that was that guy like geez that i mean we're we shouldn't have to work that hard for <laughs> to like you know have all the pieces fall into place but um i, I don't know that that may be just like a, a personal thing I'm, I'm curious um ht i know you saw this as well i'm wondering if you had any of the same uh any of that same issue yeah, um, so I was a major fan of Veronica Mars. Um, I watched all three seasons. The first season, for sure, is the best one. And I had the same reaction to, as you did to the movie. It was just fan service fluff in the worst way um, and kind of the ultimate um, example of, of fandom kind of getting the privilege over plot or characterization. And um, in Ironically, in doing so, it actually lost what I thought was the original spirit of the series. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that Veronica Mars season four does recapture that original spirit. It has um, Veronica um, being kind of being her worst enemy, which I thought was really interesting. And it um, made it had the revelation that Veronica was her own, you know, she sabotaged, self-sabotaged herself, and that's why she can't attain that happiness. And I like that arc of her trying, finally accepting that throughout the series. I thought the plotting was interesting and good. Um, it was pretty tight. I do think that there were far too many fake-outs throughout this, this mm -hmm. season that, um, you know, led the audience down many a red herring in a way that sometimes felt a little cheap. And um, I really enjoyed it up until the ending, mm. uh, in which um, I Wait, felt like no spoilers. It won't. I won't spoil it. I'll say, um, in terms of uh, how the movie felt like ultimate fan service, I felt like the ending of Veronica Mars season four was a cruel jab at fans in a way that was completely um, unnecessary and. Um, at first, I was like, well, maybe I'm just too much in the the mindset of being that fan and wanting this particular outcome for Veronica Mars because I've you know, been following it for so many years. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, well, I don't think that Rob Thomas, the creator and writer, uh, is seeking to wrangle with these um, the 
grief and trauma that comes from the consequences of this ending mm -hmm. in a way that I think it would deserve. It just felt like a cheap um, sort of shock value uh, yeah. ending. Yeah. So I really disliked that ending and it kind of tainted for me what I thought was a really solid season. Um, I did have issues, you know, with some of those red herrings and the flakeouts. I did think that Patton Oswalt was a little overused to the point where, you know, he at first felt like a self-insert for the audience. And I was like, okay, he's fun a little bit, but then the gimmick kind of became a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he came around at the end, but I, yeah, I just did not like that ending. Yeah, I, I don't want to go too much longer on this, but I, I did want to mention one other point, which was that I... Early in the season, um, Veronica treats Logan really badly. Like Logan, her her boyfriend, Logan Logan Eccles, um, is this guy who is dealing with like trauma of his own, and he has all these anger issues that he's been trying. You know, he's he's actively trying to um, better himself in this season. He's going to therapy. He's like, you know, getting his shit together basically. And Veronica like uh, actively breaks down the progress that he's made, and the show. I think largely doesn't explore th that dynamic uh, and the consequences of, of her breaking down his progress uh, to a satisfying degree to me. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. That was just one thing that that was probably uh, along with those a couple little editing things here and there. That, that was the thing that I was the most disappointed with where it seemed like it, it was teasing something interesting where it was going to go really, really deep into Veronica's psychology and, and you know, why she is the way that she is. And I, I feel like it sort of brushed up against that, but didn't quite take it as far as I wanted to. So anyway, that's Veronica Mars. It's on uh, Hulu right now. Actually, I, I, the whole, I, I the whole do have season. one question for you. Um, yes. You know, I, I have seen Veronica Mars. Uh, Kitra has not. Is this something that you could jump into not having seen that first three seasons? HC, did you rewatch the, the first three seasons before season four? I didn't, no. I think you could. There are some, like, Easter eggs and nods that might be a little confusing and some characters who show up that, um, that don't come with any explanation. But overall, as just a mystery series, I think you could jump in without knowing anything about it. Maybe a little bit with the development of Veronica and Logan would be a bit confusing. But uh, other than that, like the mystery itself and the plot, it's pretty easy to get a handle of at first. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think um, there, there are a couple little things that you'll miss. But without having rewatched the first three seasons in so long, I forgot who a lot of the recurring characters were in the show. Like Cliff, the lawyer, shows up. And I'm like, this guy seems vaguely familiar. And then I remember <laughs> that he was like a major part of the, the show in the early days. So, yeah, I think, Peter, if you, you know, if you want to watch it and then, like, just have Kitra, like, Wikipedia a couple little things along the way, you know, you should be fine. Hmm. Okay. Uh, the only thing I watched this past week is uh, I, I talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood already, I think, last week. Uh, but uh, when we saw that, Kitra mentioned she had never seen Jackie Brown. So we watched that. I think it was available on Showtime on demand. So you can watch it there. Um, and this is... Quentin Tarantino's third film, although I think it's kind of considered his sophomore slump because Pulp Fiction was such a huge hit and then this came after it. Uh, this is the only film of his that is an adaptation of someone else's work. It's uh, based on Elmore Leonard's 1992 novel Rum Punch, and it stars uh, Pam Greer, Samuel Jackson, Robert Forrester, who actually was nominated for Academy Award uh, for this. And... Uh, and um, this, uh, you know, I don't know. I feel like this movie gets a bad rap. Uh, it 
maybe because it was following Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction was such a bold, uh, you know, introduction of a visionary director uh, upon <laughs> the cinema landscape. Landscape and Jackie Brown is uh, not as bold of a statement. Uh, it, 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 like I said, it is an adaptation of a mystery story uh, or, or crime thriller, not mystery story. Uh, and the um, but seeing this years later, I haven't seen it in years. It's really good. I, I honestly think this is probably in my top like four Tarantino movies. Like I think it's on the upper echelon of Tarantino. I, I, I but I'm also one of those people that I think like Tarantino in his early days is much better than Tarantino in his later days. And I, I can already in my head hear uh, Chris grumbling at that. But uh, uh, Chris, what, what are your thoughts on uh, Jackie Brown? Uh, Jackie Brown is great. Jackie Brown is uh, number two on my list of his films. Oh, okay. It, some some days it's number one when I you know when I think about it hard. But Jackie yeah. Brown is fantastic. It's definitely a much lower key movie than Pulp Fiction, which is you know uh, cranked up. But Jackie Brown is it's a really introspective film, especially for him, and it, it's it's very melancholy. It's very sweet and uh, one of the things i really liked about once upon a time in hollywood is that it reminded me a lot of jackie brown it was kind of like jackie brown the melancholy of jackie brown mixed with the crazy insanity of inglorious bastards it, it was like kind of combining those two very different tones and um but yeah i, I love jackie brown yeah well anyways I, i'd recommend anybody who hasn't rewatched jackie brown in years to go back and rewatch because i think I really think it got a a short stick coming after Pulp Fiction. I think a lot of people it was a you know an expectations game uh, with with that film. Um, but uh, Jacob, you finally saw Tarantino's new movie. Oh, I finally saw it the day before it opened Thursday night. I did. Yeah. <laughs> finally saw it, Jacob. Finally, I saw it once a time in Hollywood and. Leaving the theater, I really liked it. And a few days later, I love it. And it's a, I think it's the best film I've seen this year. I don't want to go too long here because I already went long on The Boys. Uh, and I really want to do a spoiler podcast on this movie. I know everyone else here is itching too as well. And a, a few readers have reached out to me asking us to do one. So I, I really think that this week, guys, after HG has seen it, we should do one. Okay, let's so do I'll, that. Yep, I'll just say right now that uh, this is less of a plot-driven movie and more of a movie about evoking a half-remembered dream of a place that possibly never existed, which is Tarantino's vision of the 60s uh, in Los Angeles and Hollywood. And occupying that space for nearly three hours, I found to be sad and funny and really sweet in a way that I don't think Tarantino has ever been, except maybe since Jackie Brown. I feel like if you like the scenes between Pam Greer and Robert Forster and Jackie Brown, these two, you know, over-the-hill people who have instant connection and have a will-they-won't-they they love story that feels really mature and thought out. If you love those scenes, it is those scenes for three hours. And I was head over and heels in love with this movie, but we'll talk more later. Yeah, but it's those scenes without any plot. <laughs> uh, but- uh, we'll discuss this on the episode. Yeah, yeah, because, okay. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I, I like Once Upon a Time in yeah. Hollywood, so I, I'm not, I'm not insulting it. The lack of an overarching plot is a feature, not a bug, but we'll, we'll talk about that later on. Okay, what, el- what else have you been watching? Oh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, I got drunk with my wife and watched First Summoning, a very terrible horror movie on Netflix. Uh, it is a found footage movie about a bunch of dipshits who go to make a documentary about a haunted warehouse, clearly a location that filmmakers can get for free. 
and they encounter Satanists, and there's lots of people screaming uh, from first-person perspectives. It is terrible. The acting is unconvincing. It's all shouting. It's all waving cameras and people in hooded cloaks jumping into frame. It's very bad, and I can't recommend it more highly. Okay, cool. Uh, Brad, I know you haven't had much time to be watching TV or movies, but you did catch up on Queer Eye? Not entirely. I just watched. I've watched a few of the episodes of the new season so far. It was just a nice way to run, uh, wind down after doing a bunch of busy moving and running around in Chicago. Uh, it was a show that everyone wanted to watch, and it's just really good feel good, uh, really great feel good show. And yeah, this season is is fantastic. It's it's funny how the show continues to get a little bit more reflective on itself and self referential as, as it's become uh, more famous and whatnot. You know, uh, just like little things here and there that like the fans have latched onto. And uh, <laughs> it seems like Jonathan gets more energetic uh, every single season. And there, uh, I do, <laughs> I think it's really funny this season, especially there. I won't, I won't, you know, I, not that there's a, this is a show that you can spoil, um, but there's uh, a very funny moment uh, when Anthony uh, basically just fr- completely, uh, freak freaks out during one episode because of something that he sees, and it keeps coming back throughout the episode. And it's so funny to watch him just like, uh, basically just like, um, be get, be so cute and adorable, and just like overwhelmed by the, uh, this thing that he sees in, in an episode. So you'll know it when you see it. Um, but it's yeah, it's just it's such a wonderful show. If you haven't watched it at all yet, you should just just start watching it from the beginning. Okay, moving on. Uh, ben, you saw a bunch of movies this week. I did. Uh, I started out by watching Apollo 11, which is a documentary. I'm not sure if you guys heard about this, but it it debuted at Sundance earlier this year. Um, It's a CNN documentary. That's actually how I saw it. It was it was being broadcast on CNN. I watched it on TV like an old person. Uh, I'm not sure. I actually I just looked it up. It's it's uh, available for rent on Amazon right now. But if you still have a cable subscription and you have CNN, you might be able to find it there. I'm not sure if they're like rebroadcasting it regularly or not. But anyway, this is a documentary that was directed by Todd Douglas Miller that is in, that is comprised entirely of archival footage from the 1969 Apollo 11 mission where we put men on the moon. And it is an incredible movie. And seeing, you know, th- I've seen Apollo 13, I've seen First Man, I've seen all these movies about this event, which is like a seminal moment in American history. And a lot of times, you know, with the, some movies do a better job of this than others. But a lot of times I still walk away from those films thinking about th- that mission as this sort of impossible thing that I, I couldn't really connect to. But seeing the archived footage in this way and and tracing every single step through all these different cameras and people who are on the ground and people who were filming it from nearby and people who were in mission control and all of these different perspectives. Um, I don't, I don't know. And, and seeing just that it's a bunch of normal people using math to like get shit done. It was kind of an eye opening experience for me. I realized it's like a sort of a stupid thing to say. And I sort of, I remember feeling this way about, um, Hamilton, like after, after seeing that musical for the first time, it sort of humanized, these you know mythic figures in american history and and put an actual face and emotions on them that 
uh, textbooks can't really do. And I, I felt that way about Apollo 11. I think it's um, it's a really fantastic piece of work. It's only you know like 93 minutes or something. And it's um, even if you think you know the story, you're not going to be subs- uh, subscri- uh, surprised by any of the specific um, uh, developments along the way. But just seeing it from perspectives that you've never seen it from, and seeing a lot of footage that has never been seen before, may uh, give you a, a newfound appreciation for it. So. Um, I don't know if anybody else here has seen Apollo 11, but I thought it was really great. I want to see it. I, I just haven't had a chance yet. Uh, a movie that I did not think was really great is Serenity, the movie that came out earlier this January. Uh, this is a movie that stars Matthew McConaughey, um, Anne Hathaway, Diane Lane, Jason Oh, come Clark. on. This is awesome. Uh, Peter, you saw this movie? Yes. Okay. So, uh, this and by the way, directed... awesome in a horrible way, but awesome. <laughs> It was written and directed by Stephen Knight. Um, I actually, I had the episode of Slash Film Daily where UNHT talked about the ending of this movie saved on my phone, waiting for me to finally see this. And and Serenity is now on uh, Amazon Prime Video. So I finally got a chance to check it out and I listened to your episode. And you guys just seemed way more impressed with the sort of ludicrousness of the, the way that this movie played out than I was. I felt like the... So the only thing I knew about it was that there's a twist. I didn't know what it was, and I I purposely stayed unspoiled, and I'm not going to spoil it here, but that's like the big thing about this movie, right, is that it has this sort of crazy ending. And the thing about it is that the reveal or the twist does not really come at the end of the movie. It comes like an hour in. And so then you have a whole nother hour of like, what the hell is this movie even doing? And so everybody kept talking about the twist and building it up is this crazy thing. So you're talking about expectations earlier, Peter. I, I was going into this thinking like, okay, this this twist happens an hour in. This can't possibly be it. This can't possibly be the only <laughs> thing that this movie really has to offer because people were like losing their minds. And I, I feel like it was a dumb twist, but not like legendary to the point where people seem to be making it out to be earlier this year. So, uh, and then it just sort of ends and I was like, oh, all right, well, uh, this movie, it's one of those things that sounds way more insane on paper than it actually is when you're watching it. Um, it it's still a, a really dumb movie, and it's a really stupid twist. But uh, I don't know. I, I've seen way worse and way more entertaining and way more sort of like batshit out there, like left field kind of stuff. So um, I don't know. I, I was let down by Serenity. But uh, if anybody wants to check it out, it's available on Amazon Prime Video right now. Wait, what movie has a more batshit crazy twist that you're not like okay Uh, here's the top of my head uh sorry to bother you last year was one that i i went in and i was i was very taken by how that movie uh operated and and what it was doing and how it actually had something larger to say instead of just being a, a weird twist for twist's sake and that really just like makes the entire movie fall apart um and i can't get into why without revealing yeah. what it is so i'm not going to do that but uh, oh, oh don't get me wrong i'm not saying this is a good movie in any respect <laughs> i think there's also a difference of seeing this movie on home video and like seeing the trailers and going to see it in the theater like opening weekend when like the the advertisements like we're pitching it kind of like as this like I don't know, not definitely not what it is. Yeah, like a sexy neo noir kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's Serenity. So it's available on Amazon Prime Video right now if you want to watch that. And then finally, um, this morning, actually, I watched The Hidden Fortress for the first time. This is uh, Akira Kurosawa's 1958 movie starring uh, Toshiro Mifune. And um, this is the film that I had heard a lot about, especially in relation to Star Wars. Like uh, George Lucas uh, famously was very inspired by this movie. Um, especially in regards to the characters of C-3PO and R2-D2, because this movie begins with these two peasants who are have very much like that same dynamic, where they sort of like are constantly antagonizing each other, but they really like each other, and um, they are sort of wandering around and through this world uh, as the audience's viewpoint to a certain degree. But this is really like um, it's a big action adventure movie, and the uh, the locations and the the vistas and all that stuff are, are really stunning. Um, the story is, is great. Mifune is, is wonderful, as always. I mean, I've only seen him in, like, three or four things, but he's just, like, consistently impressive to me. Like, the faces that he can make are uh, unlike anything that I've ever seen. Um, and, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. It's on uh, the Criterion uh, Channel uh, streaming service right now, if you want to check that out. Very cool. And uh, let's move on to HT. What have you been watching? Um, the only thing I watched was uh, what I saw at Comic-Con, and I talked a little bit about this on a previous episode for the Comic-Con um, wrap-up, and that's the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. So I won't go too long, but I just wanted to give a shout-out to this pilot, uh, which I fully enjoyed, and um, it was one of the most lavish um, and enticing and entrancing pieces of fantasy storytelling I'd seen in a while and I just wanted to give it another um, boost for it comes out in August on Netflix so this is something that's totally worth your while uh, it is uh, completely if you didn't like the original film or if you're ambivalent towards it like I was I would still recommend seeing this um, series it's just so completely um, compelling so uh yeah that's just uh something i wanted to give a shout out to and uh give another um mention of okay uh very briefly after i went to Knott's Berry farm i did head on down to disneyland uh, this is for what we've been eating i did eat at the new craftsman bar at the uh, bar and grill at disneyland's uh grand californian hotel and it's this new bar that and grill that's next to like the hotel pool and it's uh really great it had uh these twice baked beef uh nachos and Kitra had this grilled cheese with lobster it was amazing we recorded a video it'll be up probably next week uh brad what have you been eating i tried uh, a new flavor of oreo that just came out it is the uh, baskin robbins mint and chocolate chip oreo and you might be thinking to yourself brad uh there's already a mint oreo out there what the fuck is the point of this oreo and that's basically uh, that the the cream in the middle is half mint, half uh, chocolate, and with and the mint part has miniature like chocolate chip chunks in it. So it's more it's not just a mint flavor; it's a chocolate mint flavor, which is slightly different from a, just a plain mint flavor inside the two Oreo cookies. And I actually do like the mint chocolate chip better than your standard uh, mint. The mint isn't quite as strong, so it's it's not as uh, overpowering of a flavor with the cookie, uh, and the chocolate just adds like a, a nice balance to it. And that, that's as somebody who very much enjoys uh, chocolate mint, whether it's you know in the form of a mint melt away or uh, what have you, a similar flavor. So if uh, if you happen to see these, they're better than your regular mint Oreo. Okay, 
And uh, lastly, in what we've been playing, Jacob, what have you been playing? I picked up uh, the new Fire Emblem game, Fire Emblem Three Houses. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this is a long-running Nintendo series. I, I don't know how many there are now, but I feel like there have been one for every significant Nintendo console over the years. And before I go any further, HT, have you ever played a Fire Emblem game? I have not. I've heard of it, but can you tell me what it is? Yes, I think this game was made as if somebody said, how can we find a video game that appeals directly to both HT and Jacob in completely opposite ways that ah. kind of go together? Because here's what Fire Emblem Three Houses is. You are a professor at a Hogwarts-esque school, except that instead of magic, you're teaching, you're teaching uh, teenagers how to be uh, future soldiers in this fantasy army. And the game's first major decision is you got to pick your house. Are you essentially the Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, or Slytherin of the of this house? So you go around, the, you got to walk around this academy, this Hogwarts Academy, and talk to all these anime teenagers and pick which ones you like the best to be your characters for the rest of the game. And then you must keep them happy and teach them lessons, arrange lesson plans, um, take them out to lunch, have tea with them, help them bud romances with other kids, and generally be their best friend. And then you take them into fights because war breaks out in extremely intense, leveled, like extremely uh, hard to grasp at first, turn-based strategy combat with permadeath. So all your new teenage anime friends, if they die on the battlefield, you make a bad choice, they die for good. And you have to deal oh with it back home to school. So it's about making anime friends and, and trying not to get them killed in a war. Oh, wow. That's sad. But I... <laughs> I would play, wait. What console is this on again? It's on the Nintendo Switch, Nintendo exclusive. Oh. But it is. I don't know. I, I feel like it's just like it has entire mechanics built around having tea with kids so they can to improve their self esteem. See, when you and said then, that, I was like, oh my god, I want to do that. I want to have tea with kids. But then, but you want to improve their you want to improve their self esteem so they'll be able to fight better in the battlefield because because oh. if they don't, they'll die. Oh no. What the fuck is this game? I'll really play great. the first half and then you can just like take the second half because I don't want the sadness and trauma of that. To be fair, you, you can turn off the permadeath. You can make it so they're just not unconscious. But that's not how you play these type of games. Like I, I, whenever I play strategy games where permadeath is an option, I turn on permadeath. There's no other way. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think this I mean... game's for me, Jacob. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, but, but somebody who put hundreds and hundreds of hours into the XCOM games, which is, you know, this but, like, military versus aliens, uh, this is very much what I want. This, it's pretty much anime, Harry Potter, XCOM, and that's those are all things that have me hooked right now. But is there a game where you can have tea with kids while completing puzzles? Because that would be a game for HD. I know there's, yeah. so, yeah, there's, there's so many, like... Uh, <laughs> J- Japan produced visual novel type games that are all about building friendships with characters. But I, you know, if I'm gonna build a friendship with a character, I I need to, like have the dramatic stakes of knowing they could die, because this is the kind of game where like characters character relationships grow and blossom, and then when somebody dies in battlefield, everybody goes home and reacts to it. It's not they like they don't get forgotten. Like every, they, like when you when you get somebody killed, you're reminded of it, and it really hurts. And I love it. Never play dating sim, Jacob. <laughs> okay. Uh, this brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all the work at SlashFilm.com. You can find links to the things we mentioned today in the show notes. This podcast is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. And please write and view this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. 
Yeah. All right. Um, I'm not I'll closing you, my eyes. This is. I'll give, I'll give you a few weeks. Have you learned the title of the book yet? I, I have it in front of me. I have it on a piece of paper. Et is holding it up in my in my studio here. All right. Well, can you tell me what the title is and who wrote it? Yes, it is the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery by Louis A. Safian. All right, you're halfway there. Uh, the full title is The Gargantuan Book of Insult, Offense, and Affrontery, Sharp Retorts, Reposts, Caustic Quips, and Impolite Put-Downs by what? Louis A. Safian. Are you making so, this up, Jacob? I'm not. Uh, that's the full title of the book. So once Peter memorizes that, we can talk again about maybe ending oh, this Oh, you son of a bitch. Bullshit. He tricked us all. I've opened the book to the Playgirls section uh, under the subsection Those Office Cuties. Uh, I'm so annoyed. Uh, This Uh, ought to be good. I'm so annoyed right now. (laughs) Well, that Ben, he has a great future. He's really going places with the boss. Whoa. Wait, what? (laughs) Uh, Brad, uh, his boss told him he'd pay him $85 a week with pleasure. But he said, with pleasure, he wanted 125. I feel sexually harassed. <laughs> Did we run this by HR? <laughs> I am the HR department here at SlashHome.com. This is all HT, HR approved. HT, no. she always stops to think. Trouble is, she forgets to start again. Uh, uh... <laughs> uh, Chris, when the little bell on his typewriter dings... He thinks it means a coffee break. That's right. I do use a typewriter for work all the time. <laughs> uh, Peter, he doesn't punch the time clock because he doesn't punch the boss. I guess that makes sense. Wait. He doesn't punch the time clock because he doesn't punch the boss. Oh, no. Uh, no. This again. I, I, I... <laughs> Peter, <laughs> hit yourself. Take a bite. I don't under. I am. The... I'm the boss. You're well, the time you, clock. You fail the typing test, but pass the physical. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Well, I think I think this one applies to all of us. We certainly can't add, but we certainly can distract. Yep. <laughs> you can. That's true. That's supposed to be a pun on subtract. <sighs> Here, hold the, hold we, the... we we can't add, but we certainly can distract ah. mm. pull the plug on this please 